Well, if you have a Bible handy, and I hope that you do, uh, you can open up with me to John chapter 14. If you need a Bible, there are some at the back. Uh, By all means, grab one. And if you need to take it home, by all means, take it home. It is our gift to you. Over the course of the past couple of weeks, we have found ourselves in the last major section of John's gospel. Uh, It sounds like we're coming to the end, but it's a big section. It starts at chapter 13 and goes through to chapter 21. And all of these chapters, basically the second half of the book, is kind of lumped together in what's called the book of glory. It's in these chapters where we see kind of Jesus' final teaching and then how he heads to the cross and is glorified and how he completes his mission. Well, last week we looked at the second half of chapter 13, and we saw Judas's betrayal. We saw Jesus predict Peter's denial. And that new command that we just sang as well, where Jesus said, love one another. Like I have loved you, love one another. And really, one of the key messages that we took away from last week, if you were here, I hope you remember it. We sang it several times. Help me out. What was it? I got one or two. Okay, he's got the whole world in his hands. Maybe online you were singing out louder in the safety of your own home. The point is, Even though one of Jesus' closest followers was about to betray him and hand Jesus over to be arrested and beaten and crucified, Jesus was still in control. And Jesus was in control uh, of what was so much more than just a religious argument, a religious battle in the first century. Jesus was in control of a cosmic war between good and evil, righteousness and justice, and sin between God and Satan, the adversary. And before we fall into the trap of thinking that this fight might have been fair, because we often say, you know, it's a battle between good and evil, and it's like, maybe they're the same. They're not the same. The outcome of this fight was known from the beginning. It was never in doubt. It was never a fair fight. And what we're seeing in these texts is Jesus about to fulfill a promise that was made hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, way back in Genesis 3, 15. And so the message, the hope for us is that Jesus was and is still in control. We also said last week, remember, that we, we saw Jesus and his disciples kind of around a table, around the, the Last Supper. They were spending these, these last moments together. It would have been an, kind of a, like an intimate family meal. And we said, put yourselves in the place of the disciples for just a minute. Imagine being in that room. Imagine being one of the disciples. These guys had spent maybe three whole years with Jesus. Every minute of every day. They'd seen all the things that he'd done, all the signs and wonders that were to point people to him and through him to the Father. They'd heard all the teachings. They'd probably shared lots of meals just like this. And they'd probably heard a lot of things from Jesus that we don't have the text of in our Bibles. They're probably more like explanations of what's going on and, and, and just moments around campfires. You know how these discussions can just sort of flow, right? They'd heard all these things, and Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And then one of them stands up and leaves the room. And after Judas is gone, Jesus looks at the remaining 11 and says, where I'm going, you can't come. You've been with me for three years, but this one You can't come. Later, you'll be able to join me, but not now. That's 
two massive bombs to drop on these 11 disciples, isn't it? And we see Peter reeling, trying to put the pieces together. He says, listen, why can't I come, Jesus? I'll come, I'll be there, I'll die with you. Jesus looks at him, Peter, the closest disciple, says, you're not going to make it through the night following me. You'll deny me three times. And the point that Jesus is making is that Peter and the other disciples, they, they can't follow him under his own power. They can't muster up whatever it is they need to stick with him through this night and make a go of it on their own. They will. They, they need that Holy Spirit that we talked about at the beginning of the service. But Peter's question, though, is a good one. Where are you going? And why can't we come? Well, Jesus uh, understands, no doubt, where the disciples are coming with and all the things that are flowing through their minds. And, and he steps into what we know as chapter 14 and, and begins to speak, and he, he addresses these questions and the feelings that are, that are, again, no doubt, churning within the disciples. And I love how he opens up chapter 14. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. I love this about Jesus. Jesus is the one in control, sure, but still facing the cross. He's the one who in, in just a couple hours will be so overcome by the, the emotional toll and the physical toll that he's anticipating and the, the spiritual reality of being separated from his father for the first and only time ever that he will sweat drops of blood. This is all the stuff that's on him. And he looks at these guys and says, boys, deep breaths. I've got this and it's going to be okay. Look at the rest of the verse. It says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. Or as other translations like the NIV say, trust in God and trust also in me. This is a, a, a saying, he's saying, listen, you guys, you're, you're good Jews. You know that you can trust God. You've, you have been trusting me so far. You've, you've believed in God and, and you have believed in the things I've done so far. Stay with it. Let me ask you, over the course of the last, let's pick 18 months or so, have things turned just a little upside down for you? Have things felt uh, a more than just a little bit? Your hearts or have your lives felt troubled? Another way we can understand that word is that, like being stirred up or mixed up like ingredients in a bowl. Has the world around you in some way seemed to have just been put into an industrial-sized KitchenAid mixer that got turned up on high? Maybe all dry ingredients, too, and they just went Pff. Here's Jesus' solution. Keep on believing. Keep on trusting. Keep on relying on me. Don't stop. He says, you've, you've believed in God in the past. You've trusted me before now. Believe in God again. Trust me again. When you and I hit chaos in our lives, and we do so often, don't we? When anxiety and stress hit and hit hard, so often we tend to doubt whether God can be trusted. I don't know why we go here as often as we do. We might not say it in that language, but, but all of a sudden we're like, you know, if God was really good, I wouldn't have to deal with this. If, if God was really good, why does it look like chaos around me? 
Or maybe we're just exploring faith and you're not even sure, uh, but you look at church, you look at Christians, and you're like, how can you believe that God is good because all of this happens? We look at our circumstances and maybe we say, doesn't God care? I, I, I just feel so alone. Does he, does he really know what's best for me? We, we head into these times of unbelief. There are times when our hearts are like ships at sea in the middle of a big storm. And, and our, our, these ships are being battered by the winds and the waves of uncertainty and, and maybe even taking on the waters of doubt. And in those moments, in the midst of those seas of s- and storms, we need to remember one thing. God controls the sea. Uh, this week I, I read a book by a pastor in Atlanta named Louis Giglio uh, called Don't Give the Enemy a Seat at Your Table. And it was, it was great. Uh, I really enjoyed it. It was super encouraging. It pointed me towards Jesus. It pointed me towards ultimately this verse too, even though I don't think he actually put it in there, but it pointed me this direction. Uh, and in one part of the book, he talks about the lies that we tell ourselves that mean we're giving the enemy a seat at our table. And th- the language of seat at our table comes from Psalm 23. Maybe you know it, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And a little bit later, it says, he prepares a table for me, a banquet for me in the, in the presence of my enemies. And he says, listen, the Lord, the shepherd, the great shepherd, has created a table for two in the midst of all the chaos, and he wants you to sit down with him. But sometimes, instead of sitting with the good shepherd, we let the enemy sneak in and sit down at that table. And, and, and we let the enemy speak untruths, things of, uh, that point us towards unbelief. And so he lists a number of these lies, and one of them is, you're not going to get through this. How many have ever kind of heard that, that lie ring through your head, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not coming out the other end of this. This, this family challenge, I don't think we're going to make it. This marriage crisis, you're not going to get through it. Parenting uh, middle schoolers or, or high schoolers or new schoolers, you're not going to make it, and maybe your kids won't either. Raising kids and following Jesus in a culture like this one that's so secularized and hostile to religion, you're not going to make it. You heard that? Now here's the encouragement that he gives us in that, that book, and I want to give to you this morning. When we hear those lies, and let's be honest, they may come hourly, they may come daily, but in the book, Louis reminds us that the only reason we're able to face the challenge of today is because God got us through the challenge of yesterday. The only reason we can stand and face this thing is because God has been faithful in the past and has brought us to this point. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. One writer says, the antidote for the virus of anxiety is trust in Jesus. It's not emotions, just trying to sort of muster up, okay, I can get through this. It's not experiences, okay, if I just hit this next high, it'll be okay. It's not others, but it's Jesus. If you've been around Trinity for a while, do you remember last summer, uh, we looked through the book of Habakkuk, just kind of as as all the COVID stuff hit, we started there. Uh, It was a series we called Hope in the Dark. Do you remember how the book of Habakkuk goes? Well, it kind of opens up as God telling his, his prophet, listen, the people have walked away from me, and there's consequences for their actions. Judgment is coming on the people of Israel, and it's coming at the hands of the Babylonians. 
ultimately we know exile is coming. Things were not looking good at all. But look at how the book closes. Even though this, this storm of exile is coming, look what the prophet writes. Even though the fig trees have no blossoms, this is Habakkuk 3, 17, and there are no grapes on the vines, even though ev- the olive crop fails, the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty. I mean, come on, what's, what's left? The crops failed. There's no figs. There's no olives. There's no grapes. The fields are empty. The flocks didn't make it. There's th- we've got nothing. Look what he says in verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. Not because things are good, but because God is good. We don't rejoice in the Lord because he's given us so much. We rejoice in the Lord because he's the Lord. And he finishes, the prophet does, saying, The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me as sure-footed as the deer, able to tread upon the heights. I think he's kind of saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe in Jesus. Obviously, the prophet didn't know of Jesus just yet. And I know that, that saying this, that, that putting this line on the screens and on the bottom of the screen, if you're watching online, might sound overly simplistic. And maybe you're saying, okay, preacher, that's easy for you. You're a pastor. Everything goes well for you, right? You, don't have, you have no idea what's going on in my life. And maybe you're right. Maybe I don't know the things that are going on in your life. But what I do know is this. So often, when my heart is troubled, the first thing I do is I try harder. The first place I go is, is to work harder. Maybe try to earn my way through. Okay, I can, if I can just muster up a solution to this thing and carry it through. If I read one more parenting book, my kids will turn out okay. If I read one more marriage book, maybe I'll have a better relationship. If I work harder, or I do the other thing, I just shut down and avoid it. Forget it. I'm just going to put on Netflix, and all my problems go away. Still watching? Still watching. And then eventually come to my senses, you know what, I can't do this. This is ridiculous. Turn to Jesus. I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but um, sometimes I get in a conversation with people, and it, you know, it's a good conversation, and, and, and it's only after we've gone our separate ways, after you know, the meal or the, the talk after church or whatever, and, and a little while later, maybe the next day, or I sit up, you know, bolt up at night, I was like, ah, I should have said that. Anyone else? Did that happen to anyone else? Or just me? Okay. More hands there, that's good, appreciate that. Well, I was having lunch with a friend this week, and, and we were catching up after what turned to be a, you know, a busy and full and fast summer. All of a sudden, it's, it's the kids are in school again. And we talked about kind of where we went and what we did and caught up and how our families were and, and how things were looking for the fall. And it didn't take too long before we started talking about you know, the culture we're living in, the schools that our kids are going to, the realities of the, the political and the social climate all around us in the Bow Valley, and it's, it's not that different from other places. And I think I can accurately say that our hearts were troubled. Things seemed stirred up, and we weren't really sure what to do in, in many of the situations that were, were no longer on the, on the horizon. You know, someday we're going to have to answer these questions. Someday this thing is going to, you know, it's going to rise up, we're going to have to deal with it. But instead of on the horizon, they're, they're right in front of us now. Now, both of us were followers of Jesus, 
were disciples. You get us into this language, right? And looking back on our conversation, especially in light of the sermon prep and, and God's working in my heart that took place in the rest of the week after that lunch, you know what I should have said? Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe in Jesus. I should have said, listen, brother, God's been good to us before, and he will be good to us again. He has carried our kids through hard things, and he will carry them through hard things again. He has sustained our marriages for the past 15 years, and he will for the next 15, and Lord willing, the next 15 after that, and, and maybe even the next 15 after that. And listen, God was at work in the Bow Valley long before you and I got here. He's going to be working here long after we're gone too. Just to be clear, I'm preaching these things to myself even right now again. Believe in God. Trust in Jesus. Listen to his voice and do what he says. He's the one that will keep us anchored for the hours and days and weeks and years to come. In the midst of everything the disciples were facing, this first verse is just so beautiful. They're looking at the betrayal of one of their own. They're looking at Jesus saying he's leaving. And, and in the midst of the things that were right in front of them that they didn't know yet, Jesus' arrest and, and crucifixion and death, Jesus gave them this encouragement, this command. Trust me. Trust me, Jesus says. Trust me because I'm going away for a purpose. I've got this. It's under control. I'm not abandoning you. I'm not finished with you yet. And he continues and he says, here's why you can trust me. Now, if we read our Bible, we've got Bibles. If we look at it, there are dozens and dozens of reasons why we can trust God. The Christian faith, um, hear me when I say this. The Christian faith is not some anti-intellectual, turn-off-your-brain, mindless jump into a dark chasm of confusion. Jesus said, I'm coming to, to shine a light in the world to explain things, to show things to you, to give you clarity and confidence so that we can trust Jesus. And this night, Jesus spends with his disciples. Right before it seems like everything's going to fall apart on them, Jesus steps in and assures them and says he's got it under control. Let me read the next couple of verses, verses 2 and 3. Jesus says to his disciples, In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Or would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Right after Jesus says, remember, it's hard when we, we divide up the book week by week and preach through it. This is only a couple of verses after the end of chapter 13 where he says, I'm going away. And now he says, listen, I'm going away, but I'm coming back. There's a promise there. He's trying to instill a confidence in the disciples that will carry them through the next days. He tells them he's headed to his father's house. Now think about this. Fathers maybe especially, or if you've got a father, I think that covers everyone. When a son goes back to a father's house, where is he going? Home. Jesus is going home. And what's he going to do, he says? Make a place for them, for us. He's saying that his home will be their home. This is, this is new. 
Jesus has, is, is going to prepare for them a new, a different, a better home. We call this heaven, right? Heaven is a, is a real place. It's not just some state of being or enlightenment. It's not something out of a, 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 a science fiction novel, or it's not like, kids, give me one of these. It's not like Santa's workshop. Look at the words Jesus uses to describe it. Even here, it's, it's a house. It's got rooms. Twice he says it's a place. This isn't some figment of our imagination, but it's something we can look forward to. C.S. Lewis writes this uh, about heaven in his book, Mere Christianity. He says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. As a baby feels hunger, well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there's such a thing as water. Humans feel sexual desire, and there's such a thing as sex. He says, if I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy, that does not prove the universe a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. There's a desire that this world just cannot fill, and it was never meant to. We read in the scripture that God has put eternity in our hearts. We have a desire within us for something more, that we can chase after whatever we want in this world, but it won't fully satisfy. There's a, a whole lot in the book of Hebrews a little bit later in our New Testament that describe this. One example is in Hebrews 11, where the writer talks about all these, these men and women of faith who are, who are looking to a different kind of city. You're right. One whose architect and builder is God. They had their minds set on something more than what's here. Jesus is telling his disciples that there is such a city, one that's built for those who follow him. It's a place with many rooms, which doesn't just speak to the beauty or the size of the place, but Jesus is saying, I'm going to get this place ready for you, and there's enough room for anyone who wants to come. For everyone who will follow me, there is room. He's not talking about it just being some amazing superstructure, but it's about being home for the weary traveler. Anyone feeling a bit weary these days? I can tell you Friday afternoon, not again. When the journey of our lives seems to turn up and down long and lonely and deserted, never-ending highways, Jesus promised that there's a destination, that there's a room prepared for you by the Master's own Son. Many years after this dinner, Peter is writing to the churches and he addresses his readers, he addresses the, the, the church and his followers as those who are chosen, those who are living as exiles, those who are dispersed abroad. He's again reminding them that this world is not our home. We're not citizens of earth, we are instead citizens of heaven. As I was preparing this week, one commentary that I read reminded me of John Bunyan's classic work, uh, the Pilgrim's Progress, maybe you've given it a skim or a read or seen a play or however else. And it tells the fictional story of a man named Christian and his journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And along the way, he meets all sorts of different characters, some good, others less good. And his travels take him through all kinds of difficult places, but he's never at home until he gets home to that celestial city. 
Here's what it means for us today. As tempting as it is, as easy as it can be, don't waste your life trying to make your home here. Jesus promises that each person who follows him will have a room in the Father's house that is perfectly designed for them. No one who enters the Father's house will be turned away. There's room for everyone. Now, when Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you, I think it can be really easy for us to picture in our mind Jesus sort of going away and, and uh, finding his tool belt and wrapping it on, putting on the car hearts and maybe the hat, depending on, you know, we've got higher safety standards than the first century maybe, but we picture him as going and, and getting to work. But the way Jesus went to prepare wasn't through saws and hammers. It was straight through the cross and the grave. The way Jesus prepares this place for his disciples, for us, is by laying down his life so our sins can be forgiven. And hopefully when we look at the cross, when we consider the sacrifice of Jesus, our longing for heaven increases. But there are some things that get in the way. An example, if you have kids or have been around kids or have had a meal with kids ever, you may know that as adults, we often need to help kids with the order in which they eat things. You've heard of this, right? Sometimes at our house with a meal, we'll have uh, fizzy water, either with, uh, you know, we'll use the soda stream or, or bubbly or buble, depending on the ads we've seen lately. Now, if we don't watch our kids, they'll have a nice plate full of food in front of them, but they'll see that bubbly and it'll be gone in an instant. And then guess what they say? Can you imagine what they say? I'm full. Less whiny, sorry kids, you're probably watching. I'm full, like, I, can I go? Well, what's happened? They've taken this short-lasting, gaseous, fill-up-your-belly-with-bubbles drink and it's spoiled their appetite for the real meal. In the same way, there are things on earth that can spoil our appetites for heaven. And when we become aware of them, we can avoid them and strengthen our appetites for heaven. A couple of things we'll look at. The first is this. It's an unhealthy attachment to earthly things. Maybe, maybe you've sensed this. Maybe you've heard someone else describe this. Maybe this is a, a constant wrestle for you. But we can get so attached to the things of this life that, that leaving our stuff here can actually seem like a punishment. Drinking the, the bubbly that is this earth can spoil our appetite for the main course. I mean, look out the window in the room, right? How many times can we kind of slow down and, and look around and sit with family, maybe up at the lake or around a fire and just say, no, it doesn't get any better than this. I was thinking about that this week because I said it lots of times. In light of this text, it seems like a pretty harmless statement, doesn't it? Can, can it really get any better than this? But I think that statement is really showing our attachment to this world. Maybe it'd be better if we said, can you believe it? As amazing as this is, as amazing as this family holiday just was, as amazing as our views, as amazing as that bike ride just was, amazing as training for a triathlon has just made me feel so pumped and excited about life, as amazing as all of this is, just imagine what heaven's going to be like. Just imagine what it's going to be like compared to that place that Jesus has gone to prepare for us. When we think about the things of this world, we need to remember that they're not the best there is, but they're just a hint. They're a shadow 
They're a foretaste of what's to come. C.S. Lewis, again, has this really great quote from The Weight of Glory. He says this, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. We can't allow uh, earthly things to diminish our appetite for heaven. The second spoiler, and I think it's the last one for this morning, is actually a wrong perspective on Jesus and heaven because of that. Often we, we wrongly picture heaven as something out of one of those, maybe you remember from, it's a little while ago, an old Philadelphia cream cheese commercial, right? Where we all find ourselves sitting on the clouds, a little extra weight, playing the harp, and just doing that for all of eternity. That doesn't sound nice. But heaven's not about that. Heaven's about Jesus. There's so many great pictures as we get to the end of Scripture and in Revelation of, of heaven being this place where we're with Jesus. That's what it's about. And so how we view heaven reflects how we view Jesus and vice versa. How we view Jesus has an effect on how we, we view heaven. The higher we think of Jesus, the more we anticipate spending time with him, the more we'll look forward to heaven the less we think of Jesus. Again, maybe we don't want to use that language of, well, I actually don't think that high of Jesus, so I don't really think about heaven. But the less we think of Jesus, the less excited we'll be for heaven. If we think that we'll be bored by heaven, by our time with Jesus, we need to, and I need to, spend more time with him here on earth, know who he really is, what he's really called us to, what he really wants for us and more time with him here on earth. I love how uh, Matt Carter wraps this passage up. I'll just leave it with us and then we'll pray. He says, Jesus gives living water. We talked about that a few weeks ago, earlier in the book, right? Jesus is the all-satisfying source of eternal refreshment. He's not profoundly happy himself, but he created happiness. Not only is he beautiful, but ugliness flees from his presence. Because heaven is not great because there's no sickness or death or pain. It's not great because the streets will be made of gold and every tear will be wiped away. All those things are true. But heaven is great because Jesus is. Because Jesus makes this promise to his disciples. He doesn't promise the coolest bachelor pad in the sky where we can do whatever our hearts desire. Though heaven will comprise wonders we can barely imagine here on earth, the promise of heaven is that Jesus will be there. So he tells them, tells the disciples, if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so where I am, you will be also. That's the promise. The promise is that they will be with him, that nothing would ever separate them from Jesus. Think of every word that describes what is good, beautiful, peaceful, joyous, wonderful, great, amazing, happy, spectacular. Heaven is going to be all of those things, but only because Jesus is there. Sin will no longer separate us from his presence. We will forever enjoy the one we were created to enjoy.
Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for this word. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you, you came those 2,000 years ago and you walked this earth. You became one of us. You, as the, the introduction to John says, you, you put on flesh and you moved in the neighborhood. And so we can look at how you related to God and to others and to yourself and ourselves, and we can learn how we should rightly relate to God and others and ourselves and creation itself. As hard as it would have been for those disciples to understand in that moment, we thank you that you went away, that you went to the cross. And on the cross, you took on the consequences for our unbelief, for the ways we say, maybe every hour, every day, I got this, God. I'll take care of it myself. We go our own way. Thank you that you call us children. We follow you. That you invite us into the family. You call us sons and daughters, and that you have made a place for us in your Father. I pray that as we wrestle with this text this week and, and the implications, and as we look at where our hearts may be stirred up and where our hearts may be troubled and, and where we really struggle with belief and with trust. I thank you, Jesus, that you sent the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the one to be with us, the one to teach us, to lead us and guide us towards you. I pray that um, this week we would spend more time with you, Jesus. We would hear more from you. And it would just build our anticipation of heaven when we get to spend every moment of every day with you. In your good name we pray.